Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every week as he talks with the greats of the game. You are the smartest guy I've spoken to on radio or television in my career. And Chris, again, you are, you're knocking out of the park. You're like eight under par in this interview. By around you research, I'm hiring your tail to be the research man. You're the best. You're a fantastic host and tremendously respected in the golf community. And- yeah, Chris, you do an amazing job and your listeners are super lucky to have you and it's always my pleasure. Chris Garrow is the king of the golf podcast. Don't miss him on Tuesdays. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for coming back and joining me again this week on Next on the Tee. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and we have got a lot to get into this week. With the now rollback of the golf ball, that's been announced by the USGA and the RNA. They want to do it. I'm not sure how I feel about it. On one hand, I certainly understand everybody's trepidation. I mean, who wants to sign up for less distance? And even if courses tried to offset that distance by moving tees forward, that doesn't take away the fact that we're going to hit our second shot shorter. So there's a lot of things going into this that we need to be cognizant of and to talk through, but it doesn't seem like the USGA and the RNA want to hear any of that. And look, I get that for courses that aspire to have PGA Tour events on them, that if we continue down this path, they're going to need to buy up more land. And not everybody is Augusta National, and they can't afford to buy up and maintain large parcels of land. But there's got to be other things that they could have thought through. So many people have talked about how courses could grow up the rough, tighten up the fairways, make the greens harder and faster. There are other things that could have been done besides this. So uh, it's a head scratcher for me, folks. Look, I want to do what's right for the game. I want the game to be around for hundreds of more years. And and I want St. Andrews to be relevant, just like some of the other courses like Marion and that have held majors throughout the years. And I get that the RNA one day simply doesn't want someone to go out to St. Andrews and shoot 40 under par. So I get that, that that's a problem. And I don't have the answer to how to solve that. And maybe that's where it all lies. Maybe it's the RNA going out and looking at the old course and say, look, we've got to preserve the game just the way it is today because we got Very low scores last time when the Open was held at St. Andrews. We got around 20 under par. We certainly don't want that 20 years, 40 years from now to be 40 under par. So maybe that is. Maybe that's the problem. And I can't solve that. And I don't think anybody else can. But I just don't like the idea that now all of a sudden we've got to retool all of these things. And when we go to the PGA Tour Superstore or wherever you buy your golf equipment, that maybe your golf balls that you're paying from a premium perspective, $40, $50, are now going to cost you 60 or 70 because manufacturing plants 
have got to retool everything, and that's going to cost millions of dollars. And where's that going to come from? Well, it's going to come from our wallets. So I'm struggling with this. Hopefully, my guest can shed some light on this for all of us. All right, let's change the tone, get a little more excited, and get into this week's show, because leading off is going to be Champions Tour Pro Bob Estes. Bob played his college golf at the University of Texas. He's a member of their Hall of Honor. He won four times out on the PGA Tour, now out on the Champions Tour. I'll certainly get his thoughts on this whole ball rollback thing. We'll also talk about his Longhorns. Hey, they're playing for a national championship on the football side. They're in the playoffs. Get his thoughts on that. We'll also hear about getting his first win in front of the home fans at the Texas Open and how players make it out onto the Champions Tour. It's not like you win a couple of times, turn 50, and you're automatically in. So we'll hear how that happens and a whole lot more when Bob joins me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to get a visit from Adam Lockwood. Adam is from my hometown of Pittsburgh. He is now the director of golf at the Golf Club of Houston, which is a fantastic facility. Used to be the site of the Houston Open. We'll talk about both of the courses that they have there, plus plus some of the other places he's been, like up in the Metropolitan section, Charlotte, North Carolina, down in the Hilton Head area as well. Looking forward to having Adam as part of the show. He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. Following him, I'll be joined by my good friend and one of the top instructors in our game, Rob Strano. Rob and I will also get into the rollback idea. Plus, what if John Rom to live? What if those rumors are true? We'll also get some tips that he has shared from his great golf TV show, The Golf Kingdom, which you can find out on Roku TV, Amazon Fire, and on Blab TV in the Florida Panhandle area. Always a good time when Rob is a part of the show. He'll join me a little bit later on in this hour. And then we'll round things out this week with a return visit from another Champions Tour pro, Billy Mayfair. You'll hear why I'm completely taking credit for Billy's strong play this year at the Mitsubishi Electric Classic when he was here in Atlanta. We'll also go back to his 1987 win at the U.S. Amateur Championship and his first win on tour at the Greater Milwaukee Open. You'll also hear why he loved going back to Milwaukee each year. Billy played his college golf at Arizona State, so we'll talk about what it was like standing on the 16th tee at the Waste Management Open with thousands of ASU fans ready to either cheer you or boo you. Billy's a wonderful guy. Looking forward to having him back as part of the show. He'll join me about an hour from now. So, folks, a lot of great stuff in store for you this week, as always, on Next on the T, and I can't thank you enough for tuning in and taking the journey with me. Before we get started, our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry, and I have been working with a company called Kickpoint, and they have done some magical things with our logos and create some polo shirts with some wonderful designs where they take our logos and turn them into designs on a polo shirt. They're absolutely outstanding. Kickpoint Golf is a private label custom golf apparel company making bespoke polo shirts, quarter zips, and hoodies for those selected clubs looking to take their branded game to a whole new level. If you want to check out their apparel, and again, it's going to knock your socks off, send an email to info at kickpointgolf.com. They'll get right back to you. There's no middleman. They're going to go right to the guys that do this work. You're going to check it out, and you are really going to love what they do. I'm going to start showing the uh, polo shirts that they designed for me on my Instagram, at CT Mascaro. Check them out there so you can get a sample of what they look like. These guys know where it's at. Now let's talk about golf getaways and buddies trip locations. When you're thinking about that, think about our friends over at the McLemore, which is a wonderful resort located just south of Chattanooga, Tennessee, high atop Lookout Mountain. 
It is a casual two-hour drive from Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. The existing Highlands course is now ranked in the top 100 courses you can play in the U.S. by Golf Digest. The 18th hole is ranked in the top 10 finishing holes in the world. A second course, the Keep, is under construction and will open summer of 2024. The Keep is a Bill Bergen, Reese Jones design and features a mile and a half of dramatic cliff edge, with every inch of that edge filled up with a golf hole. A world-class hotel, Cloudland Lookout Mountain Curio Collection by Hilton, will open spring of 2024. Both have incredible views into historic Macklemore Cove, 1,200 feet below. You got to see it to believe it, folks. Stay, dine, and play golf above the clouds at Macklemore. Go online to macklemore.com to book your stay and play package. Now let's talk grips. I want to tell you about Lampkin Grips. Every shot, as you know, has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus Black Grips. Composed of their Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability with their fingerprint technology creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot. The feel on your hand shouldn't. Lampkin. Feel is everything. I also want to remind you about the all-new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance. But there's actually two things we all want. Distance, and let's not forget, forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the Stealth 2 driver with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit them online at TaylorMadeGolf.com. Now back with me is Champions Tour Pro Bob Estes. Let me remind you a little bit about Bob's background. He's from Graham, Texas. In 1983, he won the Texas State High School Championship. Played his college golf at the University of Texas from 1984 to 1988, where he was a three-time All-American and a four-time All-Southwest Conference selection. He helped the Longhorns win three tournaments in 1986-87 and three more in the 87-88 season. In all, Bob won those six times while he was at Texas, and he did so at the 1985 Pan American Intercollegiate Tournament. The Morris Williams Tournament twice in 87 and 88. He also won the Harvey Penick Intercollegiate Tournament in 87. And he won the Border Olympics and Rafael Alacarn Intercollegiate Tournaments in 1988, along with the Texas State Amateur that year. Following the 88 season, he was presented the Haskins Award, which is given annually to the most outstanding collegiate golfer in the nation, and the Jack Nicholas Award for being the College Player of the Year. A little bit later on in 1999, Bob was inducted into the University of Texas Hall of Honor. He joined the PGA Tour in 1989 and was named Rookie of the Year by Golf Magazine. Got his first win on tour at home at the 1994 Texas Open, going wire to wire, thanks in part to an opening round 62. Bob won four times out on the PGA Tour, and in addition to the Texas Open, he won the 2001 Invisys Classic in Las Vegas, the 2001 FedEx St. Jude Classic, and the 2002 Kemper Open. Over the course of his career, on top of those four wins, he's had 12 runner-up finishes, 50 top fives, and 109 top tens. He's now out there playing on the Champions Tour, and I'm excited I get to have him back with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Bob, how are you, my friend? Hey, Chris, doing great. So, Bob, before we get into all the golf stuff, I got to ask you, your thoughts on the college football playoffs. Your Longhorns are in. Can they beat Washington and then either Alabama or Michigan and take home the title? Oh, yeah. I think finally um, Texas 
you know, is very strong at all positions. And that's what all the experts say as well. So, um, yeah, I think if, if things go right, Texas could end up winning it all. So I'm excited to look, you know, see how it goes. Bob, I want to get your thoughts on your season out on the Champions Tour this year. Back in April, you finished tied for six at the Insperity Invitational. You got you really started to put things together a little bit later on in the year, late August. You had nine of your last 24 rounds in the 60s. Talk about how you felt about how the season went. Well, overall, you know, just looking at my finishes, it wasn't that great of a season. Um, I should always at least finish in the top 36, if not much higher than that. But I, I did um, struggle a little bit with um, a few equipment issues, and that was my fault again. But then more than that, um, I strained my back um, in the gym on a, <clears throat> I think that was on a, yeah, on a, on a Monday afternoon in Madison, Wisconsin, um, after a long drive um to get to madison wisconsin and i was you know being fairly cautious and it was an exercise that i no longer do but um i had that mid back nagging me pretty much the entire summer because i never quite took enough time off for it to really settle down i received a lot of great treatment from the physical therapist in the trailer and when i was here at home but i probably needed to maybe skip one tournament uh, and give it just a little bit more time to to rest up and heal um, before I was back to normal. So it, it did, you know, it, it didn't affect my um, play during tournaments that much because, you know, Advil works pretty well for me, but it did um, somewhat, you know, keep me from, you know, practicing and preparing quite as well as I would have for most of those tournaments during the summer. So to take that a half step further, Bob, you guys are off until Wiley in late January. Are there things you're going to work on over the next six weeks? You're going to give the body time to rest and fully recover? Well, no, I was I was over the the mid back issue back around the end of August or early September, so that hadn't been a problem since then. Um, played a lot of tournaments at the end of the year, and actually was uh, making some good progress with my swing and a little bit, you know, equipment related to that. And so I was hitting it as good as I've ever hit it. At the very end of the season, um, I still made some mistakes. It seems like I was still making one or two mistakes that were costing me a, a double or, or maybe even a triple bogey in some of those rounds. But um, I did play a lot of really good Sunday rounds uh, to move up the leaderboard, but I was coming from too far behind. But I was really excited um, at the end of the season because I started hitting it so well. I still need to putt a little bit better too, but I was um, hitting it so much better um, that I'm really looking forward to you know the next couple of years kind of applying what I learned at the end of this season. Bob, I want to go back to your time at the University of Texas. And during the 86 to 88 years, like I mentioned in your intro, you won three tournaments each of those seasons. So did the team. And you guys really didn't finish outside the top five very often. Talk about the team that you had and knowing that you guys had a chance to win each and every week. Well, I, I, <laughs> you kind of got me there just a little bit. Um, you know, we, we did have a, a bunch of really good players and a lot of great guys on um, those teams that I played on at Texas, but we didn't do as well as we had hoped and didn't do as well as we probably should have. But um, there are different reasons for that. So it was still a great experience. I'm glad that I, um, you know, went to the University of Texas and played those four years at Texas. And I do have a lot of great memories, and I'm still friends with a lot of the guys um, 
you know, that were on those teams. Um, but um, yeah, we, we, we still probably should have done a little bit better than we did. Houston won the national championships in 84 and 85. They had Steve Elkington, Billy Ray Brown, Mike Stanley were a part of those teams. They were winning a lot of tournaments that they played in over the course of those couple of years. As you can imagine, you don't win a national championship by accident. But how fierce was the rivalry between your University of Texas team and that Houston team? Well, we were pretty good, but I don't think that there was that much of a rivalry. because They were so much better than we were for the most part. Um, you know, those players that you mentioned. And since you did mention Mike Stanley, he was a high school teammate of mine as well. He was a senior when I was a sophomore. He was two years ahead of me. So um, we obviously had a very strong high school golf team as well. But, um, yeah, that was great that he got the opportunity to play at the University of Houston and then on tour. And, you know, and then he won as well in New Orleans. But, um, yeah, they had many other really good players as well besides those that you mentioned, like Dave Tennis and Billy Tootin and um, Trey Tyner and, yeah, on and on and on. I don't remember all of them. Uh, Tim Hobby. Um, so lots of really good players um, that went on to have success on tour. Um, and, you know, some really successful club professionals as well, like Tim. But, um, yeah, I think uh, back then, for the most part, um, Houston, Oklahoma State, and Wake Forest, for the most part, um, you know, were, were the best teams in the country. There are so many great players in Longhorn history. Along with you, there's Brandel Chambly, Ben Crenshaw, Tom Kite, Phil Blackmar, Mark Brooks, Justin Leonard, Brad Elder, David Gossett, Jordan Spieth nowadays, along with Scotty Shepard, to name just a handful of the great players that have come out of the University of Texas. Talk about what it means to be a Longhorn and the great tradition that you guys have there. Well, I think you pretty much just covered the tradition. I mean, it's, it's very deep with all of those great um, players and coaches, you know, Tinsley Pinnock, um, George Hannon, Jim Clayton was my coach, and Justin Leonard's coach. Uh, John Fields, who's the coach there now, and has been for you know, many, many years, probably a couple of decades. So, uh, yeah, um, success um, at Texas as golf specifically has, um, yeah, has a, a great history. So, um, it's been nice to have won even more national championships. And I wish my team would have won a national championship or at least attended one of those years. But, um, yeah, there's just it's, just, it's a factory for the most part. There's just so many great players. Uh, coming out of the University of Texas because of the coaches, the, the University of Texas Golf Club, the, the schedule that the coaches put together, the competition amongst the members on the team. And, um, yeah, you're, as long as you're putting in the work, you're going to have success. So, Bob, you were inducted into the Longhorns Hall of Honor in 1999. What was it like when you got that phone call? Well, I don't remember the phone call specifically, but it obviously was a great honor. Um, I had a, you know, very good college and amateur career, like you mentioned earlier, and, you know, being rookie of the year on tour and then winning my first uh, PGA Tour event in 94, um, along with other good finishes and appearances in the tour championship. So, um, yeah, it was, yeah, I, I, I wasn't anything that I was really thinking about, but uh, something that I'm very proud to be a part of. Bob, I remain stunned that you're not already in the state of Texas Golf Hall of Fame. When I see 
Billy Ray Brown and Chad Campbell and Steve Elkington, Jeff Maggard, Blaine McAllister, guys like that in there. I think your career is on par with most of those guys. How are, How is it possible you're not in? Well, that's a great question. And my original golf instructor did um, submit my name last, uh, I'm sorry, spring or summer, whenever it was of uh, 2022. But the way they do that, um, it's not really, like you said, just in as far as your entire career. It's, it's pretty much divided up between your professional career and your amateur career. And so, you know, I didn't have the greatest professional career and I didn't have the greatest amateur career relative to other players that are in the Hall of Fame. But if you combine the two, um, you know, maybe I could be or should be. I, it's not really my call. But um, but that's the way they do it. They don't do it um, the way that you would think. They have a an amateur inductee each year and they have a professional inductee each year. And for the and, and they do request, uh, especially if it's for the professional um, that might get inducted, you know, they do want you to include your amateur resume as well. But it's not really a combined amateur career and professional career, which would probably help me more than anything as far as getting inducted, hopefully in the future. Bob, I was looking at your statistics from 1991, and that year, your average driving distance was 254.7 yards. This year on the Champions Tour, your longest drive was 384 yards, and you averaged 270.8. You're going to be 58 in a couple of months. Are you the reason why they're going to roll this golf ball back? No, I don't think it's me. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's guys like Rory and Tiger and those guys. But um, Scotty Scheffler, who just bombs it, got to watch him up close and um, during the Dell match play. Um, Maybe that was um, in 2022 and not, and not this year. I think I was playing during the Dell match play this year. But no. Um, so back then, 1991, I remember I switched at some point during the year. It, it might have been, you know, a half or two thirds of the way through. I think the first time I hit that little um, steel headed um, Bridgestone Jays driver with a graphite shaft was maybe at the U.S. Open um, in 1991. So prior to that, I would have been probably still playing a wooden driver. Um, now, once I did um, get to hitting that Bridgestone Jays driver pretty well, I kept playing that. I think for the most part, um, you know, it's been so long ago, I can't remember exactly because I've used different sizes, you know, of heads, different materials. Um, you know, it was a smaller headed titanium driver that I used uh, for a while in 2001 and maybe, you know, a year or two before that, um, that Cleveland was making, um, I was, I was on the Cleveland um, golf staff at that point, but, um, yeah. It, it, another thought that I just had as far as that driving distance that you were talking about, um, especially as, as it is right now, um, a, a lot of the, a lot of the holes, um, they're always trying to get two holes to measure driving distance each round on the champions tour. And they're, you know, usually running in opposite directions, mainly because of the, you know, the, the wind could affect, affect it quite, quite a bit. But um, a lot of times, or, or, or sometimes we're not even hitting driver off of those holes. Sometimes the smarter play is a three wood or even a rescue club. And so, so the driving distance can be um, a little deceiving 
Um, you know, when you're just looking at it like that, occasionally you hit a tree off the tee, occasionally you hit it into a bunker. And so you lose 30 or 40 or 50 yards. So, so it is pretty deceiving. We're not, we're not hitting great drives on every driving hole and, and also not hitting a driver, but, um, but I am um, hitting it quite a bit longer than I was, um, you know, back in the, you know, eighties, early nineties, mid nineties, um, you know, because of um, technology for the most part, because I was always training. I mean, I was probably overtraining when I was, you know, first on tour. Uh, I was much bigger and stronger in the upper body back then. Um, but um, yeah, but there's so many different factors, you know, as far as the, you know, the, the graphite shaft, you know, being much lighter, the size of the head, the spring-like effect, golf balls that don't spin as much. Um, so yeah, there's, there's so many things going on there to, to help you hit the golf ball, um, quite a bit longer, even as you get older. So what are your thoughts about this idea that they're going to roll the golf ball back? How do you feel about it? Well, they've been talking about it for so long that I really hadn't even given it that much thought, really. I'm just like, you know, are y'all, are you finally going to do something or are you not? They've been talking about it. It seems like ever since the pro V one came out and, you know, 2001, 2002. Um, so, you know, I, I do have a, a few thoughts um, regarding that, even though I don't worry about it too much, you think about it too much. Um, and one of them is just pure geometry. You know, you know, the, the longer you hit it, um, the farther it's going to go offline. And so you have um, the male ego drives so much of equipment sales, and driver sales in particular. And I, it's, it's just so much more fun to be able to, to hit a driver and, and hit, hit it in the fairway and not have to worry about going and looking for it. But the longer you know, the golf ball goes, you're not going to be hitting every drive straight. And a lot of these people, you know, you know, you know amateurs and the, you know, the, the higher handicappers, yeah, they're, they're hitting it um, you know, a, a distance maybe they've never hit it before. But if they're not hitting it straight, it's just going deeper into the woods or getting into a hazard that it might not have reached before. So um, that's one way to, to look at it. Um, and I haven't really heard. Um, I mean, like I said, I haven't thought about it too much. I haven't read too much about it uh, this week since they announced it. Um, I don't know exactly what it is that they're planning on doing to roll the ball back. I mean, is it is it mainly just going to spin more or, um, I, you know, I know they have the. Um, the machine to measure the the spring-like effect, COR, I believe is, you know, what they call it. And um, yeah, I, I, I just haven't heard how they're going to, to roll the ball back. There's probably a few different things that they can do to that. And so I'm, I'm kind of like everybody else for the most part, if they're going to do it, they're going to do it. And I'm just, I'm just kind of waiting to see if they actually do go through with it. Bob, we've got Q School going on right now for the Champions Tour. And um, I think that's the thing that not a lot of us understand how how Q School comes about. How do you get out on the Champions Tour? Because I think um, we think through and say, hey, win a couple of golf tournaments, turn 50, you get to go out and play on the Champions Tour. It isn't that simple. There's a lot that goes into it. Talk about how, how do you guys qualify to get out on the Champions Tour? And then what is Q School all about? Yeah, it can be a little bit complicated because of the different categories, but it's, you know, it's really not that difficult to understand once you take a look at it. 
Um, you just mentioned um, a player winning a couple of tournaments and being able to go straight to the Champions Tour. That it actually has worked that way for a number of players because of a special category that they've had for many, many years. Where um, if you have one, I think you have to at least have one win on the PGA Tour. Um, and when you turn 50, you might be playing out of that category. I think there were two spots given in that category for many years, and then they might have reduced that to one. So um, if, if you're 50 years old, you might start out the year playing out of that category, say you won um, once on the PGA Tour. But if then somebody turns 50 a couple of months later and they've got two or three or four wins, um, I believe that they bump you out of that category. So then you would have to qualify another way. So that might not be exactly right, but that is um, one way that a lot of guys get one free year, basically, on the PGA Tour. Because, you know, there's not that many guys turning 50, you know, each each year. And um, but but there, but there usually are, you know one, two, three, four guys each year turning 50. But there's there's many categories. Um, you know, the, the one that you, you normally maybe would have heard more about is the career money list. And uh, that's the, the category that I'm playing out of right now. Uh, I think I made the top 36, which is like making the top 125 on the PGA Tour. But the last couple of years, I haven't played quite as well. And so I finished uh, somewhere between you know, 40 and 50. And, and that's, that's another category as well. So if you don't finish in the top 36 and you haven't had um, that great of a career where you made um, a lot of, um, or had a lot of career money, then you still want to make sure you at least finish in the top 54 because that category is kind of like a, a field filler, um, pretty much like on the PGA tour. But uh, the number one category is the top 36 from the previous year. And then the second main category is the PGA Tour points category. And they take um, nine players from that category. And sometimes you might play out of one category one week and a different category the next, depending on who may or may not play um, just ahead of you, you know, out of any of those categories. And so that that does get a little bit confusing at times and, um, you know, kind of frustrates guys occasionally. But um, the third category is a Champions Tour points category. Uh, let me back up a little bit, though, because that PGA Tour points category, you have to have a minimum of five points to even be in that category. And, and that's either five official wins on the PGA Tour. I believe the majors count for three points. So if you won two regular tour events in, a, in, a, in a, a major championship for three points, you'd have your five and you'd be playing out of that category, but you still probably wouldn't hardly ever get in because there's so many players with more points um, taking up those nine spots. But then the third uh, category is the champions tour um, points category. And that just deals with wins specifically after you turn 50 whether those are regular tour wins or um, senior majors, I think the points distribution is the same. I think it's probably one point for a win and, and probably three points for a senior major, but don't hold me to that. I'm not positive, but, um, but it has to be worth more than a, a regular tour or a champions tour victory. 
And, and they take um, four spots out of that category each week, although a lot of those players that are in that category are retired and, and maybe done playing. So occasionally there might only be three players that get in the tournament out of that particular category. And then the fourth main category is the one I mentioned earlier, the career money list category. And they changed that um, this year um, for the beginning of this year uh, from 11 spots to 12. And so I'm, I'm still set and safe in that category for quite a while. But um, I think there's a floor of about 100 off of the all-time money list, which is a combination of the PGA Tour money list and the Champions Tour money list. So we're still constantly trying to move up that list and pass players to, um, you know, either keep us out there for longer or um, possibly um, qualify for major championships that, the senior majors that you might not be in if you're not ranked quite high enough or you're just trying to maintain your position. So um, those are the, the four main categories. And then, you know, Champions Tour um, Q School is going on right now. Today was the first round. They've been playing for five spots the last however many years. And I think it's still five unless they changed it to four, but I, I think it's still five. Um, again, don't hold me to that one either. Um, we'll know in, a, in three days whether it's um, still five or four. And um, there's there's many other categories to kind of fill the field, um, just like uh, on the regular tour. They do give um, special invites. Um, and then also they have a category for <clears throat> sponsors invites. But I think you have to have won a tournament on either the PGA Tour or the Champions Tour. So that's covers it for the most part, but there are other categories that you can get in to get in um, Champions Tour events. So these guys, and there's, I believe, 78 guys out there trying for these five spots. I think folks would start to wonder, why only five spots? It doesn't seem fair that you got all these players out there and there's only five spots available. Seems like a small number. Do you know why it's five? Well, there's multiple reasons for that. And first, what you have to realize is, is that we only play 78 players each week, except for three of the majors where there's a cut. But as far as just your typical Champions Tour event, we play 78 players and we play three rounds because we have two pro-am rounds. So we play um, morning and afternoon on Wednesday and morning and afternoon on Thursday. And sometimes... Um, I play in two pro-ams and sometimes I'm in just one because of, again, the, the, just the way the numbers work out. Um, so, so that has um, something to do with it. We're playing 78, not, you know, a hundred or 125 or whatever. And, and, and we're going and to expound on that. We're, we're all almost always um, going off one and 10, you know, it's not like, you, you play in the morning and a bunch of other guys are playing in the afternoon or vice versa, like on the regular tour. We're all pretty much playing at the same time or within a couple of hours. And so we have two hours of tee times off one, two hours off 10, you know, typically. And so everybody's out there at the same time for the most part. And, um, you know, those tee times are, are really nice. They're, they're usually from like 10 to 12 or 11 to 1 or something similar. Um, and that's really nice. Because we we spent um, you know 20, 25, 30 years waking up to the alarm at four or four fifteen, four thirty, five a.m. for a lot of those you know 
6.30 pro-am tee times or 7 or 7.30 a.m. tournament tee times. And so um, it's nice to not to have to get up quite as early uh, most of those um, mornings. But then the other thing regarding um, Champions Tour Q School and only having five spots, um, a lot of people don't really realize, and they just, you know, a lot of people don't think it's fair. Um, but what they also fail to realize is those other guys had just as much a chance um, to qualify or get themselves exempt on the Champions Tour as I did and so many others, you know, by, by playing the, the regular tour for 20 or 25 or 30 years and having that kind of success. So, you know, I've been, I, I spent basically 30 or 32 years um, trying to, to qualify for the Champions Tour. And so, so there is a reward for that kind of longevity and success. Bob, one more before I let you go. And the holiday season's got, I want to get your idea for Christmas. What, is, what does Bob Estes hope to wake up to on uh, Christmas morning and find under the tree? Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. I'm usually more focused on what I'm going to get my nephew and my niece and um, and uh, a few close friends. So I really haven't even thought about that. But let's see. But as you say that, I'm actually um, I, I currently I'm going to take it back to golf because I'm, I'm with my club repair guy here in town. I'm working on fine tuning a set of irons. So that hopefully I've got that done by Christmas or the beginning of the next year. And I don't have to spend as much time kind of making minor tweaks or whatever. So um, I'm, I'm hoping for the perfect set of clubs by Christmas time or sooner um, as I head into the 2024 season. So that's maybe not the answer you're looking for, but <laughs> that's the best thing I can come that's, up with right now. That's good enough. Bob, before I let you go, remind our listeners, how can we stay up to date? with you out on the champions tour and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media. Uh, on Twitter, I'm Estes PGA. That's my second account after getting hacked by somebody selling fake Ray-Bans back in um, April of 2020. So um, if anybody clicked on that one, they would notice there haven't been any posts since back then. And I was never able to get that one um, back under control. So it's just Estes PGA on um, Twitter or X. And then on Instagram, um, Bob underscore A underscore S. Well, Bob, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. I always enjoy getting to spend some time with you, learn a little bit more, talk about your career, and have you as part of the show. You're fantastic, my friend. I hope we get this privilege again soon. Um, sounds great, Chris. I'm sure we will. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Sounds good. Thank you. See you, Bob. See you. That is the great Bob Estes, folks, and a wonderful, wonderful player. He's he's one of the more underrated players, I believe, that played so many years out on the regular tour and now out there on the Champions Tour. I mean, look, we talked about him getting into the Texas Hall of Fame. When you go back again and look at all of the things that he did at the University of Texas, the six tournaments that he won, the awards that he won. I mean, again, outstanding collegiate golfer in the nation. Uh, following the 88 season, the Jack Nicholas Award for being a college player of the year. He talked about two categories and the, and the struggle to get in as whether it was as an amateur or it was as a professional. Well, I mean, how much better does it have to get? I mean, the guy won six times at the University of Texas, was an All-American three times and was the college player of the year. 
seems pretty solid to me. And then he goes out and, and earns his way out onto the PGA Tour, wins four times there, and is one of the most productive players out there consistently, you know, week in and week out out on the Champions Tour. Again, on top of the four wins, 12 runner-ups, 50 top fives, 109 top tens over the course of his career. Seems like a guy who deserves to be in his home state's Golf Hall of Fame and then continue to play as consistently well as he has. And he taught, you heard about the back injury, but boy, he sure found something in late August. And again, nine of his final 24 rounds in the 60s. So Bob's a force. He's going to, he'll turn 58 in January. I expect that 2024 is going to be a tremendous year for him out on the Champions Tour. Very excited to watch him play and track his success again as we go into the 2024 season. Give him a follow on Twitter at Estes PGA and then over on Instagram, Bob underscore A underscore Estes. I'll try to get him back on the show, hopefully very early on in the 2024 season. Coming up next is going to be Adam Lockwood. Adam is the director of golf at the Golf Club of Houston, an absolutely spectacular facility. Their tournament course, which is where they used to play the Shell Houston Open, looks absolutely outstanding and is certainly one that is now on my bucket list because it's one of the two courses that they have there that's open to the public. But before I get to Adam, I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year. And I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. An average player, I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe. And I need all the help I can get. And the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a 58. There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX full-face wedges from Cleveland Golf. I want to tell you about something else I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show, and that's me and my golf. And how does a 45-day free trial to Arco sound? Well, me and my golf have partnered with Arco's and are offering 14 free sensors and a 45-day free trial to Arco's Caddy. When you purchase any training aid on shop.meandmygolf.com. This is a limited time offer, so don't miss out. Again, go online to shop.meandmygolf.com. With many years in the business, menswear brand Construct has finally launched its green golf collection, sustainably produced using renewable solar energy and recycled fabrics. Hit your best shot in their performance-enhancing polos, quarter zips, and bottoms. Made with four-way stretch, quick dry, and UV 50-plus protection. From solids to bold, eye-catching designs, Construct Green is the perfect piece for making the best memories on the greens. And the best part? You can head to Construct.com, and that's C-O-N-X-S-T-R-U-C-T.com, and use code CHRIS for 20% off the green collection today. Okay, so now making his next on the T debut with me is Adam Lockwood. Adam is from the Pittsburgh area, just like I am. Always great to have a fellow Yinzer as part of the show. He is currently the director of golf at the Golf Club of Houston. Going back in his career, he's been an assistant golf professional at places like the East Hampton Golf Club, Colleton River Plantation Club in Bluffton, South Carolina, and Trump National Golf Club in Charlotte. He was a director of golf at Bally's Golf Links at Ferry Point a little over a year ago before moving to Houston. Going back to his college days, he earned his degree in professional golf management at California University of Pennsylvania, 
and I'm excited I get to have him with me this week here on Next on the T. Hey, Adam, thanks for coming on the show. Chris, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for the nice introduction. I appreciate that, and um, it's great to, great to be with you tonight. Well, Adam, like I say, as I was doing my research on you, as I was excited to see that we're both originally from the Pittsburgh area. Talk about where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up uh, a little outside of Pittsburgh. As you know, Pittsburgh's made up of many small towns. And if you're anywhere within a 50-mile radius, you just say you're from Pittsburgh. Um, <laughs> so I uh, actually grew up in, in Dubois for the first half of uh, for the first half of my childhood. Uh, started playing golf when I was five at Scottish Heights Golf Club, which is in Brockway, Pennsylvania. Uh, as a course, my dad built, who was also a PGA professional. And uh, when I was 12, I moved down to the Indiana, Pennsylvania area uh, where I played my high school golf at Apollo Elks and also played at Links at Spring Church uh, before getting a, a nice part-time job working in the cart barn at Indiana Country Club, uh, which I think is a hidden gem in western Pennsylvania. So to your point, you played high school golf and you were pretty darn good. I read an article in the Trib where you led the team to a win over Elderton when you shot 36 in the Division II section match. Talk about your high school golf day. Yeah, that uh, that was fun, man. When all you have to worry about is uh, getting through the school day and then going to play nine holes in the evening. Uh, that's that's always good. Those are the good old days. Um, but I uh, always loved competing and got to play some uh, pretty cool golf courses, uh, playing in the Whippeal and... Uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, as, as golfers, we, we just love to compete. And now it's, it's section events instead of, uh, high school golf matches. What got you to enter the Penn West California professional golf management program? What interested you about that? Since my, since my father was a, a golf professional, um, you know, I, I, um, I, I always found it intriguing and, I I didn't know much about their career, and I went to Indiana Country Club to job shadow uh, when I was in high school uh, with he then professional Dan, uh, Dan Braun, who now teach uh, now coaches the IUP Crimson Hawks. Uh, after after that, I I knew that was what I wanted to do, and I, I visited. Penn, well, it was California University of Pennsylvania then, but now Penn West California, um, and, and met with the, the program director there, Justin Broner, uh, who is just a world-class guy. And, um, you know, after my visit there, I, I knew that's where I wanted to attend. So talk about the program. I don't think enough people know about the professional golf management programs that, that some schools have. What did it teach you? Yeah, you know, I, Everyone who goes to a PGM school, they, I feel like they go in um, all with something in common, and that's that's for um, you know the passion for golf. And by the time you leave there, you really take that passion and you turn it into um, well, the staff there tries to turn you into a well-rounded professional. So you take that passion of golf, and you know you learn about uh, business and teaching golf operations, you get a background in turf grass management, food and beverage. Um, and also something that I really liked about the Penn West program uh, was that the, their major was in sport management. So if 
if you look at other programs, I think Penn State, theirs is in, I believe it's in tourism. Um, and, and based on d- different programs, the, the major itself is, uh, is a little bit different. Uh, but I like that um, Penn West had the sport management program. And, um, you know, out of, out of Penn, out of Penn West, the, the program by the, by the time I was done with it, you know, I had, I had four internships. I did my first one at Indiana country club. My second one at one of Moisette country club up in, um, just outside Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, they host the Northeast amateur, a really cool Donald Ross course. And then I went to East Hampton golf club. Uh, exclusive club out in the Hamptons of Long Island. And then my last internship was at Emerald Dunes Club in West Palm Beach. So but by the time of um, I was done with my four years in college, I had already been to uh, four really cool clubs that were all different from one another. Um, They're all great in their own way. And I had I had already built a network by the time I graduated. And as I'm sure you know, the the world um, golf is such a small world, and it's it's amazing who knows each other. And um, you know, even as my career continues, it's uh, it just continues to amaze me how how small the golf world is. And you never know um, you never know how it could help you out down the road. So uh, you know, my experience at Penn West really. Um, it was it was really great in that aspect, just the networking and the internships. And I really felt prepared after college and East Hampton Golf Club offered me a spot back after my my final internship. And uh, that that really kind of launched my career. So let's take that a step further. You mentioned East Hampton. You spent time up there in the metropolitan section in and around New York, a very competitive section, a lot of great golf courses up in that area. Talk about your time there. Yeah, for, uh, I'll touch, I'll touch on East Hampton Golf Club first, um, uh, cause obviously I went back to, to work at Ferry Point, but, um, East Hampton was really cool. Man, they live a different life out there. <laughs> um, you know, all the golf courses that are on the East End of Long Island, you have, uh, you have Maidstone and Sabonic and Shinnecock and National, uh, you name it. It is, um, it is just such a hot spot for golf and, uh, just a really cool place to be. And then when I returned to, to Ferry Point, uh, r- right in the Bronx, Bronx, New York, right in the thick of things, um, really, really cool experience there. And I actually lived up in White Plains, uh, when I worked there and, you know, within five miles, same thing. You have Sleepy Hollow, Wingfoot, Fenway, Purchase, um, you know, Brayburn, the, the list goes on and on. And, uh, just an incredible place. And I played in a couple, couple section events when I was there. And you talk about some great players. Wow. Um, you know, people shooting 62 and that's, that's out of my league. I, I, I try to keep, try to shoot around par if I can, but, uh, man, it's tough to compete with those guys. Those guys are good. You mentioned your time at Ferry Point and. I've had both Michael Breed and Greg Ducharme on the show a couple of times each. Did you get to know those guys while you were there? Uh, not while I was there. Uh, speaking of golf being a small world, um, I actually met Greg whenever I was doing my last internship at, down at Emerald Dunes. 
um, met him. And then, you know, fast forward a couple years later, uh, I, I see him again at Ferry Point. So it's funny to see our, our paths cross um, once again. But uh, Greg's a stellar guy. I, I didn't get to spend uh, really much time with Michael Breed. As you know, Michael Breed's a very busy man. So I uh, would have loved to shadow his teaching a bit. Uh, but didn't get that opportunity. I, I did get to spend some time on the range with Greg and, you know, anytime you can spend some time with uh, an instructor like that is, is always time well spent um, to see how those guys do, do their thing. And talking about Ferry Point, what a great looking golf course that is. You got the New York City skyline sort of visible there in the distance. Talk about the course there that they have at Ferry Point. It's uh, it definitely is spectacular, and that place is hard. Uh, don't miss the fairway because you'll you'll be hacking it out of hacking it out of the fescue. Um, can make for a long day if you're not hit, if you're not hitting the driver very well. But um, awesome conditions. The superintendent there, Noah, uh, does an incredible job there, and those uh, panoramic skyline views certainly don't get old. Um, man, it's you step onto the thirteenth tee and feels like you can reach out and touch the skyline, touch the Empire State Building. And, you know, there's a couple tee boxes on the course where you say, okay, aim at the Empire State Building and play a draw off of it. And uh, that's pretty cool. You don't get to do that very many places. So now you're down at the Golf Club of Houston. You've got two wonderful courses there, a members course and, and the tournament course where they used to hold the Houston Open until a couple of years ago. But a heck of a 36-hole facility. Talk about that. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it, it was a great move for me. I believe I wanted to get back to the private club sector, um, really enjoy working for a membership. Um, and like you said, two spectacular golf courses that they, they play, they play different. Um, you know, the member course is, uh, less, less for less force carries, a little more natural. Um, I think, I think it's a little easier. And then the tournament course, um, also they both play near 7,500 yards. Um, so certainly plenty long in, in length. And I don't play all the way back. I, I'm, I like to enjoy my golf. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, uh, it's, it's a great club. Um, I'm happy to, that we made the move to Texas. It was, we had a, we had a fitting day on the range today. It was 71 degrees and we are in early December. So. Uh, this is, it's been a bonus. It's, it's great. <laughs> so, yeah. So talk about that because, you know, coming from the Pittsburgh area, having spent time up in the metropolitan section in and around Long Island in New York, and now you're down in Southern Texas. How does golf in New York and the Northeast differ from playing down there in Houston? Yeah, it's certainly different. Um, you know, I, I touched on it earlier about the clubs that are, that are in New York. You have, uh, a lot of history, a lot of old clubs, um, which do exist down here in, in Texas, but I, I find they're, they're a little bit newer. Um, and, you know, obviously the grass is, is different. Uh, you know, going back to Bermuda, Bermuda grass for me, uh, as I, you know, like you said, I spent time in the Carolinas and then, uh, moved to New York, back to bent grass and now back to Bermuda. So, um, that, that has been a change in, Things are, things are pretty flat down here. You don't, don't have a whole lot of elevation change, whereas in New York, um, there may not be a whole lot, uh, compared to Western Pennsylvania, but, um, you know, 
in playing in section events and playing different golf courses, you definitely had a little more, a little more elevation change than you do here. Adam, the golf world is all abuzz right now about the, what seems like eminent announcement that the USGA and the RNA are going to go forward with rolling the golf ball back. What are your ideas, thoughts about that? It, it caught me by surprise. Um, I, you know, I feel like I heard rumors about it uh, a couple months ago, maybe a year ago. Uh, I, I saw a headline about it and I couldn't believe it then. And then it, it kind of went away. And I, I was really surprised to see it come back. And, and I guess it's happening. Um, I didn't think it was the rumors were going to come back because whenever it came out the first time, I didn't feel like anybody really supported it. Um, I think it's it's going in the wrong direction. You have all this technology. You know, golf has come so far in technology in the, the last 10 years, even before that, the last, you know, 20 years. And it's strange. I think it's strange that they, they want to ro- roll back some of the technology. And I th- also found it interesting that they want to roll the ball back 3 to 5%. Uh, I don't. For the best players in the world, I, I don't think that'll make a huge difference. Um, you know, if Roy's going to hit at 325 versus 350, I still think he can overpower golf courses if that's their argument. Um, for, for the everyday golfer, like my members, a lot of amateur golfers already play a tee box that's too long for them or a set of tees that's too long for them. And, and now they might have to move up a set, maybe two. <laughs> um, so, like I said, it, it, it really did surprise me. I, I think there's there's other ways to, um, you know, if there are arguments that, that these scores are too low in major championships, there's there's other ways to make a golf course hard with, with fast greens and uh, really thick rough. You know, we saw the uh, Fitzpatrick one at the Country Club in 2022 with a score of six under, uh, the 2018 U.S. Open at Shinnecock. Uh, Brooks Kepka wanted at one over. So I still think there's ways to, to make the golf course hard. Um, it's, it doesn't always have to be distance related. And we're also dealing with, um, I feel like go- golf has evolved and it fitness is a lot more in, important now. You look at the, how these guys are built. Um, and it's, it's just different now than, than, than it was, say, you know, 20, 30 years ago. You mentioned that you don't play from the back tees. You like to enjoy your golf. Well, now with the golf ball potentially being rolled back 5%-ish or so, and like you mentioned for Rory, maybe not a big deal for someone like him, but for the rest of us, if we're driving the ball 230-ish, and now all of a sudden we're driving the ball 215 or something along those lines, now that's a big deal to all of us. Do you think whether it's your club or clubs in general, are going to look at having to install new tees or moving tees more forward to offset that loss in distance. Uh, I hope so. I think it, I think it makes the game more fun. And you know, you talk about someone who hits at two thirty off the tee, you're losing fifteen off the tee, and then you're losing another, you know, ten going into the green. So, um, you know, it, it just makes the makes the golf course feel a lot longer. And I. I'm always um, a big supporter of teeing it forward. You know, there's there's times I'll play with, uh, I'll, I'll play the senior tees, I'll play the whites with some members, and 
Yeah, that's a lot of fun for me. Work on your work on your wedge game a little bit, and um, you know, enjoy it that way. So I, I'm a big supporter of Tee It Forward. I will I will promote that 100. percent But um, you know how golfers are they, they they like to play as far back as they can. Adam, one more before I let you go. And with all the great places that you've been so far in your career, who are the people that you've had an opportunity to work alongside that have helped you, mentored you, maybe taken you under their wing? Yeah, I've had, man, I've had a lot of great mentors. Um, you know, I'll start with my, my internships. I, I, I worked, I did some shadowing under Brad McCluskey, um, Joe Merlin, who's the head professional at Monroe Golf Club. Uh, Tony Sesta, who uh, was the head pro head pro at East Hampton when I was there, is now the general manager and former head professional of Augusta National. Um, so I, you know, and and for the teaching aspect, uh, Nick Arthur, the teaching pro at East Hampton, uh, in, incredible, incredible instructor, and spent count spent countless hours on the lesson tee just just watching him and s- seeing how he does his thing and. Um, just watching, you know, kind of how he, he crafts his lessons and as many, as much as you, as much as I enjoy, um, watching these people, I just don't think I can, I can do it. I don't think I can do it enough because, uh, each time I I take a little bit from every instructor and, um, kind of craft my own philosophy that way. Adam, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can we stay up to date with you, whether it's following you online or it's on social media sure i um i i do have a an x account i i don't tweet a whole lot unless it's about uh maybe the pittsburgh steelers or the map canada saga which is now over <laughs> <laughs> same um so uh my my handle there is is a lockwood pga and uh i'm also on on instagram uh same handle uh also on linkedin so um yeah those those couples um, social media outlets there. Well, Adam, it has been great having you as part of this show with, uh, with me this week. I hope we get the privilege of getting you back on again sometime soon. I, I would love that. Thank you so much for having, for having me. Um, happy, happy holidays to you and um, happy new year. I appreciate that. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you and your family. Like I say, I hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again soon. All right. Thank you, sir. See you, Adam. All right. That is Adam Lockwood again at a Lockwood PGA out on social media. A guy who's from my you know, hometown area in, in the, in the city of Pittsburgh and has had a wonderful, a lot, you know, wonderful opportunities to grow his golf career through many wonderful clubs. I mean, the, the places that he's been up and around the metropolitan section and then having the opportunity to do some things down in the in the Charlotte and uh, Bluffton, South Carolina areas. Now down at the Golf Club of Houston, which is, uh, from what I've seen online, folks, a just unbelievable facility. Easy to see why they held the Houston Open there for so many years. They've got a private members course, and then the tournament course is actually open to the public. So if I'm ever in the Houston area, that's a place that I certainly want to go check out. Great facility from what I've seen online. But uh, Adam is doing some great things and having some great opportunities and uh, just seems like a wonderful uh, young man. And I hope, uh, like I say, hope we get that privilege of having him back on the show again very, very soon.
Coming up next is Rob Strano. And Rob is not only one of the best instructors that we have in our game, but just one of the great people that you get to meet in this life and one of the best people on the planet. A guy that I am so very thankful for, for the great contributions he's made to this show over the years. Tonight is going to be his 19th visit with me. But before I get to Rob, I want to remind you about two under men's performance wear. They're the unofficial underwear of the PGA and the 2020 Ryder Cup team. Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador, and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry, and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, like David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Scott McCarron, and Chris DeMarco. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tee box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code N-X-T-O-N-T-E-E-20, so next on T20, to save 20% at checkout. So go to 2under.com, that's a number, 2-U-N-D-R.com, 2-under, performance in your pants. Relax. Easy now. Find your happy place. It's all in the hips. Just tap it in. Yes! Find the latest clubs and apparel at Golf's Happy Place, the PGA Tour Superstore. Okay, now back, and like I mentioned a moment ago, making his 19th appearance with me here on Next on the T is one of the all-time great instructors in our game and the host of the Golf Kingdom TV show, Rob Strano. You can find the Golf Kingdom out on Amazon Fire TV, Blab TV, Roku, and of course, Rob's YouTube channel. You can find him down at Strano Golf Academy at Kelly Plantation in Destin, Florida. Reach out there. Make sure you get your golf lessons. If you're going to be anywhere in that area, you want to go meet with Rob because he's going to take your game to a whole new level this winter. He is a fantastic friend and a guy who has just made unbelievably great contributions to this show over the years, and I couldn't be more excited. I get to have him back again with me this week here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Rob, how are you, my friend? Doing great, Chris. Great to be back. 19th time. This is the 19th hole, and, and hey, I got my glass here. Hear the ice? <laughs> I did, I did this may be ice. more like, like Ron White than uh, than Rob Strano <laughs> here with the 19th hole. So uh, you, you might want to have your finger on the mute button. Oh, no kidding. I got to get the dump button. Hang on exactly. a second. Exactly. <laughs> get that thing. Keep, keep your hand on it. It's the 19th hole, and I have free game. <laughs> All right, well, then let's get right into it, Rob, because there are some big things that I want to get your thoughts on. We were texting back and forth about the John Rom to live rumors. You've got an interesting take on what could be going on there. Talk about that. Oh, it's it's a real simple take. It's It goes back to what we grew up with, Chris. And, and when you think about the PGA Tour, when you and I grew up, and you start naming names, what did we watch? We watched Nicholas, Weisskopf, Miller, Watson, Irwin. On and on, you know, the Craig Stadlers, the Fuzzy Zellers. We watched the American guys. It was the American PGA Tour. And when we had the European invasion come over, those guys came over for the money. They came over because they could make more money playing here. Well, here's my thought. It's real simple. Go away. Go away. <laughs> John Rob, go away. You're, you're a Spaniard. Go back there. Let's get back to having the Americans playing the American Tour. You go play the international tour. If America wants to go play somewhere else, go play somewhere else. But I think the win-win here is it's going to get back to being the Americans playing the American tour. And we're going to have a, a fan group of, of people watching the tour. They're going to be celebrating 
you know, the Spieths and the Justin Thomases and all the American guys that are playing the tour and representing the country and our tour and not being invaded by all the outsiders that want to come and cherry pick the, the PGA Tour, much like the guys did when the Sevies and the Faldos and the Langers came over and did that. So, okay. So if, if Rom were to leave and go play live, and we've heard the idea that Rory might be moving back to England in the next few years, wants to raise his daughter back over there, have her go to school there, that sort of thing. So if we got to a point where Rom is, whether he's playing on the DP World Tour or he's playing on the Live Tour, Rory goes back and, and spends more of his time on the DP World Tour, and we sort of get that sort of natural, hey, this is more of the American Tour, that the DP World Tour is more of the European Tour, and then the Live is doing some sort of hybrid thing going yeah. to maybe other parts around the world. Maybe that is the true international tour. There you go. Then, right. So now we've got that, that sort of separation back out. Where does that leave the PGA tour though? Because Rory was supposed to become the face of the PGA tour. I know he's a little upset with the boys on the tour and Jay Monahan for making him out to be the scapegoat and the, and the, you know, sacrificial lamb, if you will, based on his feelings about live. But what does that do to our tour? Does it diminish our tour at all here because the guys have gone hither and yon? Or does it make it better? I don't know. I, I think the American tour can stand on its own. I think we've got so many great players that are coming up through the college ranks that will go on to play the tour. They'll graduate from the, the Corn Ferry tour on there. And, you know, you've got a great stable of players as it is. And everybody, you know, when they go to a tour event, they seek out the Jordan Spieth and, and, and the, like I mentioned, Justin Thomas's, those guys that are out there. Will Zalatoris played this past week. Tiger still moves the needle like nobody else, which we saw playing the, the Hero World Challenge this past weekend. Um, so he'll, he'll play a few spots here and there as, as things transition and settle. But I just think, I just think the PJ Tour, as I've said from the beginning, has to get back to doing what they do well and forget about all this other nonsense of, you know, we want to, we want to be an international tour. We want to play abroad. No, we don't. We want to play well. And I think back to when I was growing up and, and as a college player and then on and on to being a tour player. I, you know, the tournaments I wanted to win, you know, yeah, I wanted to win at Memorial and, and Bay Hill because that was Mr. Palmer and Mr. Nicholas. But you know what other tournament I would have loved to have won? The John Deere. Because that's right in the Midwest where I grew up. I loved that event. Um, I would have, I would have been as excited to win that as I would any of the others. And that's how, you know, you saw Keegan Bradley when he won at Hartford. He was so excited about that hometown event, hometown win. You know, we, we've lost a little bit of that flavor, um, on the tour. And I think, that needs to come back and we get the excitement and do what we do well as a tour for the players that want to play it. And don't let everybody else cherry pick it like like has been it's been done in the past. So we're sort of waiting until the end of the month to find out about this proposed partnership between the PIF, the PGA Tour and uh, the DP World Tour. If that doesn't happen, where does that leave the PGA Tour? Because, again. If Rom leaves, we've heard all the rumors about Shoffley and Cantlay coming out of the Ryder Cup and they're 
desire to get paid to be a part of the Ryder Cup. There's rumors about maybe they go over to Liv as well. I mean, if Liv is cherry-picking the best U.S. players and they're cherry-picking the best international players because they've got unlimited funds, I'm worried, Rob, that the PGA Tour is really going to suffer outside of a few diehards that decide to stay because, you know, they're loyal to the PGA Tour and they, they don't need the money or don't want the money or the political issues that go along with potentially being a live tour player. But boy, if you've got the guys they already have and you've got Rom and you pick off a Cantley and a Shoffley and who knows who else the money can buy, all of a sudden the PGA tour kind of feels a little less than, doesn't it? I mean, you know, maybe a little bit, but you know, having played for a long time, you know, I was always amazed at the depth of guys. I've got a guy that I coach that, um, Unfortunately, he's coming back from a car accident where someone ran a stop sign and T-boned him and mm. took him out for the year. But he is as good as anybody on the planet. He just hasn't been able to kick the door in. If, if he, if he had the opportunity Tiger had where he got seven sponsors exemptions and signed a, a check for $50 million or whatever it was that Tiger signed with Nike and could just go play and not worry about money and had access. He would he would light the world on fire. He's that good. But we're just trying to keep working on, you know, perfecting the craft and understanding when our opportunity's there, we gotta be able to kick the door in. And when he and when he does, and it's a matter of time when he does, he, this, you're gonna go, where'd this guy come from? Holy smokes, because he's got all the tools and he's got no fear is the big thing. He he had a, a lot of these guys beat in college and He's, he's not afraid of any of them. And we just got to get out there. And that depth is there. If Cantley goes, Cantley won't be missed. There's, there's four other Cantleys coming behind him. There's more Shoffleys coming behind Shoffley. These guys aren't Tiger. There's always been replacements that come in and take your place on the bus. And as I've said, the PJ Tour is a small bus. And if you willingly give up your seat, boy, good luck. Cause Tough seat to get back. Rob, the other major topic right now is the USGA and RNA about to announce that they're going to roll the golf ball back for everybody. Are you in the camp that this is a dumb idea or is it good for the long-term manageability of the game of golf? Here's what I've learned in 53 years in the game of golf. The, the groups that are running it aren't being run by golf people. You know, they're being run by executives. You look at the board of these places and it's not golf people running it. And, you know, they have their little, you know, waiting periods where they, they seek information and listen and all that. But you don't have golf people running it. I'll give you an example. I, I'm in Pinehurst this year, back in August. And I'm talking to a, uh, another coach and a couple of people, tour players on the putting green. And we're talking about the rules of golf and stuff. And I make this point. And we're talking putting specifically and, you know, anchoring and this and that about putting. And I go, how about the line on the ball? That's something you could, you could snap your fingers and go, no more using the line on the ball. Very simple rule to change. It's like, you know, if I went to a pool hall and said, Hey, we're going to play a hundred dollar eight ball. And by the way, I'm going to draw a line on the cue ball and line it up in every shot. They're going to cut my throat and throw me in the alley. You know, it's a simple rule. But once again, those that are administering the rules and thinking about this stuff have no 
earthly idea on the ground what's going on because they're not golf people. They've never played for a living. They've never played and just played and played and played golf. They've never thought it through. They're just, you know, they're, they're probably, there's probably a little bit of money behind the scenes buying and paying for decisions. Um, so, you know, until I hear what the plan specifically is, you know, there's a lot of speculation on what it might be. It might be they're going to they're going to split it and bifurcate it for the ball and go tour players have to use one ball. Everybody else can use rocket balls if they want. We don't care um, to enjoy the game. If they're rolling it back universally, they're they're looking at the wrong thing. Um, yeah, you could kind of tame the golf ball, but you need to look at the driver. The driver used to be the hardest club to hit. Now you got these 73,000 cc drivers with a sweet spot the size of my my mixed drink glass here. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's a lot easier to hit and maul it out there. And, you know, there's a lot of decisions that could be made, you know, ahead of this one and other ones that they're not even grasping that would make the game more fun, beneficial. It grow the game. Um, but, you know, until they come out with what they say they're specifically going to do, and I'm not privy to any of those details, you know, who knows what they're going to do because most of the decisions that have come out of the USGA, USGA have been like, okay, instead of dropping the ball from shoulder high, we're going to drop it from knee high. Oh, wonderful. That's, that's so great. You know, <laughs> so who knows what they're going to throw at us with this golf ball thing. So could we see a situation where we have different golf balls at different golf tournaments? And here's what I mean by that. It seems like Jay Monahan, when he emerged from being in hiding after the <laughs> announcement with the PIF uh, potential merger, when he came back, the first thing he said was the PGA Tour wasn't going to adopt this golf, you know, rolling the golf ball back. We're not going to ad adopt the model local rule. We're going to stick with the golf ball that we have. Well. Now it appears that, you know, the RNA and the USGA are going to say, well, it's going to be one golf ball for everybody. And we're rolling the golf ball back universally across the board. But could we see a place where Jay Monahan says, well, we're going to allow our players to continue to use this golf ball. But if you're going to play in a USGA event or you're going to go over and you're going to play in the open, you got to use this ball, which, oh, by the way, isn't all that foreign to us, as I'm sure you remember way back in the day when they played the open. The, the British ball used to be just a little bit, uh, the circumference was a little bit smaller than the U.S. ball. And our guys used to have to go over there and, and practice a little bit to get used to the smaller, you know, diameter of that golf ball and how far it would carry and all that sort of thing. So it's not unheard of to play no. two different golf balls. Could you see a place where that may be where we wind up? And, and that's, that's completely possible because if there's one thing we've learned about Jay Monahan, is he might be the dumbest person in the room. To, to quote Doc Hogue from one of my favorite movies, Doc Hollywood, he's a bovine clod painted citified moron sometimes. <laughs> so, you know, no telling what he's going to do. He's, he's totally botched everything that he's, he's looked at with the PGA tour right now and has been an absolute disaster. Like still can't believe the players haven't, haven't gone to the tour headquarters with pitchforks and torches. And, and, and removed him from a position there because it's been, it's been, it's a disaster. And we talked about that previously about, you know, who I'd love to see in charge. And, you know, with Azinger no longer with NBC, 
he's my choice for the commissioner of the tour. He'd be a he'd be a quick vote in. You're in charge, Paul. You love the tour. You love golf. We know you're going to do what's in our best interest. Go, and that that's what I do. So the tour could split it. They could they could adopt their own thing. I I've said for for years. The interesting thought I had, and I may have said this to you when we were at the Masters a couple years ago. I'm surprised Augusta did not introduce what I would call the Masters ball. So it would be a ball with the Augusta logo on it. The players would get two dozen to practice with off-site prior to the tournament. Once your invitation is extended, balls have to be returned to the club. And then when you arrive, you get however many dozen in your locker. They're on the range. They're a ball that conforms to what Augusta wants it to conform to. And at the end, the balls are collected by player, and then they are sold at auction. So you could buy a game, game-played Tiger Woods ball, a game-played um, Jordan Spieth ball from the Masters, and then they take that money and donate it to Junior Golf to grow the game. And Augusta could lead the way on the golf ball thing by doing that. I always thought if I was – you know, I had Fred Ridley's ear at Augusta. I go, hey, Fred, I got an idea. And, you, you know, it's a way to, to make money for charity by, after the tournament, taking golf balls that were used in the event or used on the range and, you know, and auctioning them off or just, you know, selling the driving range balls, you know, sell them $100 a sleeve or something. And you actually have the master's ball from, you know, 2024. I love that idea, by the way. I think that's outstanding. Well, thank you. I have one every once in a while. Did <laughs> you do? It, I mean, it could it could be the it could be the rum and the drink here too. So I, you know, <laughs> who knows at this point? Rob, you're sure the golf kingdom is fantastic. You help us learn how to improve our games in a very fun, enjoyable kind of format. Do you mind sharing a couple of the tips that that you've included recently in your time to build segments? Well, you know, one of the great ones in the building, and since this is the 19th hole, we're, we're going to talk about using a couple things that you'd find in your bar to help you putt better. So a real simple one is take a wine bottle and put it down on the ground and putt to it. It's like having a cup there. You just ding balls off a wine bottle there. Uh, another simple one is take your wine opener. You know the wine opener with the legs on it where you screw it in, and then you take the legs and you squeeze them down and it pulls right. the wine out? I did one recently on the show where you lay that down and squeeze the legs together and you practice from two feet, three feet, four feet. And it's, it's just wide enough for a golf ball to fit into. And you put the ball into the wine opener. And Mm. then, uh, the other one I did was if you have a wine rack, you know, those little, little portable wine racks you can put like on the counter that, you know, it goes up, down, up, down, up, down. Well, if you want to work on your golf swing, put it on the ground and swing back. And you'll go through the one opening. And as you come down, come through the nearer opening in your wine rack, if you can picture that. So it's just as little where you put two bottles in them. And so you go back through one and you'll make a little shallowing move and come through the one next to it that's closer to you. And you'll learn better path doing that because most players come back and they do it the other way. They come through the opening closest to them and then come down to the one far away. So. That one right there is a great little little build a drill. You can use things from your bar at home to help your game. And speaking of that, it's funny. I was sitting in the bar at the club the other day, and I was sitting with one of our members, and he had kind of had his head down in a drink. And I said, 
Joey, what's wrong? He goes, oh, just talking to a buddy of mine. I said, what's, what's, what's all about? He goes, why are you so down about talking to a buddy of yours? He goes, well, he lost his wife. And I said, you know, what happened? He said, well, he went to play golf and he was playing the seventh hole and he hit it off to the right. And there was a, a barn over there and he got right behind the barn and he couldn't hit a shot around the barn. And he kind of was trying to figure out what to do. And his wife said, open the doors on both sides and just go low through the barn. Look, you can see the green right through there. And he said, awesome. So he opened the barn doors and he got back and he got a four iron. He looked at it and he hit it and he pulled it a little. And Chris, when he pulled it, he hit the side of the barn. And the ball came back and his wife right square between the eyes and just knocked her, knocked her over dead. I was like, holy smokes, Joey, that's terrible. He said, yeah, it is bad because he quit golf. I said, really? How long did he quit? He said, well, he hasn't played in a couple months, but we got him back on the golf course. I went up and saw him. We got him back on the golf course and we went and played him. We got over to seven and darn it, he doesn't over by the barn again. And I go, what happened? He's over by the barn. He goes, well, he got over there and we said, you know, Open the doors and go through the barn again. He said, no, I can't do that. Last time I did that, I made seven. <laughs> Brutal. Wow. Hey, that's what happens when you're at the 19th hole. I guess so. Rob, one of the other segments that you recently added to your show that I really like is don't be that guy. <laughs> Which guy shouldn't we be? You don't be the guy that doesn't rake the bunker. That was the, that was, that was one of them. There's a couple coming up. You know, the guy that pulls up and parks two wheels off the, the cart path and, and, you know, starts, you know, everybody starts doing that. And pretty soon you got a dead spot next to a T or you're parking it off the, uh, off the cart path. Another good one is, you know, when someone gets up there and they accidentally knock the ball off the T and, you know, someone goes, that's one. Don't be that guy. <laughs> don't be the guy that does that, but don't be the guy that, that doesn't rake the bunker. And, and, you know, I, I did the segment on that, which was a fun one I did. And, um, and, you know, when you walk in the bunker, you see these players walk in the bunker and they just tromp around in the bunker. And I was like, learn to walk in a bunker. You walk lightly in the bunker. You don't tromp around and then tromp out. And then you go to rake it and you half rake it and you, you know, and then the next guy gets in there and he doesn't have a shot. And, you know, that just comes from being on the tour and growing up around Bob Goldby. Because if you if you were playing with him and you raked a bunker badly, he was he had you by the shirt collar and said, "Get back down in there and rake that properly." And so we learned at a young age how to properly rake a bunker and not be that guy. You recently had a great friend of this show on your show, and that was Mark Kalkovecchia. Talk about your conversation with Cal. Oh, I had a great time talking with Mark, and we I, I caught him wherever he had parked his his RV from tournament to tournament and we had a great visit. And the, the one thing you and I laughed about from my visit with them, and I told him, I warned him, I said, Mark, I'm going to find questions that you've never been asked. Um, you know, you get asked them a bunch of different questions all the time. And, you know, I'm going to find the ones you've never been asked. And I asked him a good, two good ones. I asked him about, you know, the, the playoff at the open championship. I said, that was the first four hole playoff ever. And I said, what were you thinking? Because it wasn't sudden death when you were walking to the four hole playoff. What was in your mind? He said, honestly, Rob, I didn't find out it was a four hole playoff until I was halfway walking, walking with them, with the official. And he said, by the way, we're, the playoff starts on one. And he goes, one or whatever he said. That's a weird place. We don't go, we go away from the clubhouse. That doesn't make any sense. He said, why one? He said, well, one, 
two, 17, 18. He goes, it's four holes. Oh yeah. It's four holes. Mark. He goes, well, he said, I was thinking, great. I got four holes to potentially to win this thing. I'm not going to screw it up on one. Yeah. That, that, you know, when you think about it, you can look at that thing two ways, right? I got to play four holes against these three, you know, these two guys. So it's a three-way playoff for four holes. Oh my goodness. Or you can take it like Mark took it on a positive note and say, look, that gives me an opportunity if I have a bad hole to make up for it over the, you know, the remaining three. I think, you know, Rob, we talked so many times on this show and you and I have talked about this together about having a positive mindset and looking things and looking at things with a positive bent and not looking things as a negative all the time. And we do a lot of that when we play golf. I think Calc and the way he looked at that was the right thing to get him in the right frame of mind to go out there. And then obviously what he did is he won it. Exactly. And great mindset. And it, and, and I'm sure afterwards, once he won the thing and, and lifted the claret jug, he went back and did what he told me he did in my fast five questions for him. So at the end of the interview, we always do a little bonus segment called fast five. And I asked him, I said, Hey, Mark, you get up in the middle of the night and you're looking for a late night sneaky snack. What are you going down and getting? And I'm expecting ice cream or cookies or whatever. And, and you knew this. I didn't know you knew the answer. I'm telling you, you knew the answer or you, you've eaten what yep. he eats. Yep. Something. Both. 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 But it was, it's, what is it? Salami, pickle. Cheese. You got to get the cheese. Salami, cheese. cheese, cheese and you wrap pickle. that around a pickle. And he, he, that's what he eats and he washes it down with a root beer. Yep. I'm like, oh, that's awful. But you know, <laughs> I haven't tried it yet, but I will. <laughs> I tell you. And as I said to you before, you got to take that up a notch too. Do the salami with the cheese, but put a pepperoncini pepper in the middle instead of a pickle. There we go. Ooh, I, I'm going to try so it with good. the pickle first before I go, before I turn pro. I got, I got to play as an amateur before I turn pro. <laughs> that's right. Rob, your golf school is located at Kelly Plantation in Destin, Florida. You've also got a, a wonderful indoor studio as well. Let our listeners know how they can come down and get a lesson from you. Well, the, the easy way to find me and find out what's going on is at strandlegolf.com. The TV show, The Golf Kingdom, all the shows are on our YouTube channel. So go out to YouTube and sub subscribe to The Golf Kingdom. All the interviews are there and all kinds of fun stuff. And then the, the TV show is also on Roku. So those are the, th the three ways to really catch me. If you want to, you know, get in touch with me, get in touch with me through the website, schedule us and come on down to beautiful Destin, Florida, and we will make your game better, my friend. Yes, you will. All right. One more before I let you go. I got to know, what does Rob Strano look forward to when he wakes up on Christmas morning and going underneath the tree? What does he hope is wrapped up underneath there from Santa? You know what? I don't, I, you're, <laughs> you're going to get me there. I don't, I don't look for anything under the tree. You know what? Um, I, my, my daughter's coming home at Christmas. My son just got married and we'll have my, my daughter-in-law here for Christmas. Um, she's been here as a fiance now, daughter-in-law. What I want to find around my Christmas tree is my family. And you want to go listen to my forever Christmas song. And I just listened to it right before I came on the air. And I listened to it about every day leading into the holiday, in, into Christmas day. Go listen to Ruby Lewis sing Somewhere in My Memory. 
that's my Christmas song. And I don't get through it without getting a little bit Italian emotional. But that's that's what's around my tree and under my tree family. Rob, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show for a 19th time. You're one of my all-time favorite, not just guests on this show, but people on the planet. You're incredibly talented. You're one of the top teachers in this game. I don't care what Golf Magazine or Golf Digest, any of their rankings. You are certainly a top 10 in my book, and uh, and I think in a lot of other people's books as well. So I can't thank you enough for all the content that you have shared with me over the years and uh, your wonderful friendship, and uh, I'm already looking forward to time number 20. I'm, I'm looking forward to it also, but you know what? It's still time number 13, number 19, and, and bartender, with what Chris said, I appreciate it and, 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 and love you like an Italian brother that you are, and thanks for having me on. And bartender, give me a double. It's the 19th <laughs> hole, 19th time with you, Chris. Thanks again for having me. Absolutely. Take care, Rob. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. You bet. Merry Christmas to everybody out there and you and your family too, Chris. Thank you, Rob. That is the great Rob Strano, folks. They just don't come better. The guy is absolutely one of the best instructors that we have in this game. I've been fortunate to spend a little bit of time down at Kelly Plantation with him. He helped me with my game, both uh, on the driving range and on the putting green. Uh, and But on top of all of that, I mean, Rob's a great instructor. He's, in, in my book, one of the top 10 of all time. And on top of that, he is one of the best people you will meet on this planet. He is a great friend, a loyal friend, and somebody that uh, makes everything that he touches better. Whether that's just a conversation you're having with him, whether that's your golf game that you get to spend some time with him at, or it's one of the great privileges that I've had is getting to walk the grounds at Augusta National with Rob and then be at the PGA Merchandise Show. He made my experience at the very first PGA Merchandise Show that I ever got to attend, which was earlier this year, the best experience that I could have had because of what he he brought me, you know, brought to it for me and brought me around to see. And I'm looking forward. I hope I get the privilege of doing that again with him in late January this year. I'm already looking forward to getting back down there to the PGA Merchandise Show for 2024. But Rob is just, he, you know, we talk about don't be that guy. Well, on the opposite side of that coin, Rob is that guy. Rob's that guy that you want to spend time with. You want him to help your game. You want to be paisans with him. And you want to have him uh, as part of your inner circle. Great man, great individual, and, an, and a fantastic instructor. And I, like I say, looking forward to time number 20 already. Coming up next is going to be another great Champions Tour player and a guy who had a great amateur career like Bob Estes earlier in the show and played really well out on the PGA Tour and is continuing on on the Champions Tour and is a great person on top of all of that. And that is Billy Mayfair. Before I get to Billy, and folks, do you sway and you're off balance in your golf swing? You know what? It could be your shoes. A golf shoe needs structure to provide stability and reduce sway. How can you tell if your shoes lack structure and are hurting your game? If you can hold your shoes by the toe and heel and twist it, toss it. Squares was designed for the perfect balance of structure and comfort. Isn't it time you tried squares? Try the new speed bolt at squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z. Looking for the ultimate Myrtle Beach golf experience? Well, it's only a click away. Check out the two-play special at two of America's most awarded public golf courses, Caledonia Golf and Fish Club and True Blue Golf Club. They are low country masterpieces featuring two iconic Mike Strands designs. 
Play these two incredible courses for one great price. Visit CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com to learn more about the two-play special and book your tee time today. Again, that's CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com. Okay, now back with me and next on the tee is Champions Tour Pro Billy Mayfair. I had the privilege of spending some time with Billy and his wonderful wife, Tammy, earlier this year at the Mitsubishi Electric Classic here in Atlanta. The most enjoyable hour that I have spent all year long. They are both wonderful people. Billy's a heck of a player. He's had a heck of a career. Let me remind you about it. He's from Phoenix, Arizona. By the age of 15, he had become such a great junior player that Boys Life magazine featured him on the cover of their March 1981 edition. Played his college golf at Arizona State, where his 1986-87 scoring average of 70.59 is still among the best in school history. He won the 1986 U.S. Amateur Public Links Tournament, then the 1987 U.S. Amateur Championship by defeating Eric Redman 4-3 and three at Jupiter Hill Golf Club. He won back-to-back Pacific Coast Amateur Championships in 1987 and 88. He also won the 87 Haskins Award for being the nation's best collegiate golfer. And he was a member of the U.S. Walker Cup team as well that year. Billy turned pro in 88. He won five times on the PGA Tour, got his first win in 1993 at the Greater Milwaukee Open. He won twice in 1995 at the Western Open and the Tour Championship, which was played that year at Southern Hills. He won twice again in 1998 at the Nissan Open, where he became the only player to ever defeat Tiger Woods in a playoff. He won again later that year at the Buick Open. He has also finished second 19 times and in the top 10 91 times between the regular and champions tours. The Arizona Golf Association presents the Billy Mayfair Trophy to the local player with the lowest weighted scoring average each year. And I couldn't be more excited. I get to have him back again with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Billy, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, thank you, Chris, so much. I, I got to let everyone know, too, as we add to that, that, you know, Atlanta this year where we talked on Thursday, I had my best turn of the year there. So I'm I'm going to give you a little bit of credit for that, too. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell you what, Billy, I did notice that. And and oh, by the way, I'm taking full credit for that. Okay. <laughs> for the time that we that hour we spent, I'm taking credit for how well you played. All those tips you gave me really paid off. <laughs> Indeed. Billy, I want to start our time tonight by talking about your season. You played really well towards the end of the season. You shot 64 in the first round in the Ascension Charity Classic, 67 in the Sanford International. Was there something that you were working on that started to really come together later on in the season? Well, I think I got more comfortable. I think the the weather, I've always been a type of a warm weather type of person. But, you know, my wife, Tammy, uh, was on the bag with me all year. And, and I think we just started kind of clicking a little bit uh, uh, with my golf swing and, 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 and fundamentals that we wanted to do. But one of the things we also, if you also notice on those, that my scoring average on Sunday wasn't nearly as well either. And, and that's something that I'm taking into consideration during this off season. Uh, my preparation, uh, my physical preparation, uh, not only with my mental, but my physical needs to get a little bit better. My stamina wasn't quite as, as strong as it, it should have been. Uh, I don't know how else to say how you shoot, you know, a stroke average of 73 or 74 on Sunday, you know, that's going to cost you a lot of money down the road. So um, I was happy that I played better towards the end of the year, but I just, did not finish it off the way I wanted to. And that's kind of what we're trying to work on this off season. 
Bill, you mentioned your wife, Tammy. It was, like I say, so great to get to spend some time with both of you this year. She's amazing. You got to have her, as you mentioned, on the bag for you this year. And she's had her own wonderful career inside the game. Talk about getting to have Tammy as a part of your team. Well, you know, obviously she she's my wife. Uh, she's my soulmate. Uh, we, we really get along good. And, and if you can go out and and be together all the time, even on the golf course, when you go to, when you, when you go to your job and your wife's here with you all the time and, and you have fun with it and, and enjoy doing it together, uh, you know, that relationship and that bond is really special, but I'm, I'm real lucky that Tammy's very knowledgeable about the game. She has been played the game her whole life. She's been around her dad who was on the, on the champions tour for a little bit. Uh, so she's very familiar with it. This isn't uh, a deer in the headlight situation whatsoever. So we make a good team, and when she's off a little bit one day, I'm on, and when I'm off, she's on, and, and we just try to help each other along. Billy, one of the things about the Champions Tour that I don't think people have enough appreciation for is how hard it is just to get out there and be a part of it and play on the Champions Tour. It's not like you win a couple of tournaments on the regular tour, you turn 50, and now you can play on the Champions Tour. We've got Q School actually going on right now with hundreds of guys just vying for five available spots. Can you give our listeners a flavor for just how hard it is to get out there and be a part of the champions tour? Well, the, the part when the champions tour, when Jack and, and Arnold started the champions tour, it was kind of a, of a uh, reward for the guys who played a lot on the big tour, uh, who were very successful on the big tour and to kind of keep them and, and, and to keep their interest going and to keep the fans kind of interested in them too. So it's it's kind of a reward for guys who played a lot on the PGA Tour, guys who played well for a lot of years on the PGA Tour, which I was fortunate to to, to do. So uh, it's nice to be out there. Um, I, I think as the years have gone along, I think a lot of players who didn't play the tour as much kind of see 50 as a new start to their life. And and uh, they think they can come out and, 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 and compete with us, which some guys have and, and some haven't. But uh, it's it's a great thing for us because it, it gives us something to look forward to. Uh, we're not quite ready for retirement, that's for sure, but it keeps our minds active. It keeps us traveling and it keeps us in the routine that we wanted to do. And, you know, it helps our, our pension down the road on the PGA Tour. And, you know, we can always use some more prize money, that's for sure. Billy, I want to go back to early days when you won the 87 U.S. Amateur Championship. And like I mentioned in your intro, you beat Eric Redman three and two to win the title. And I know Eric had to go through two time champion Jay Siegel. He had to beat Scott Gump, who was the medalist, just to get into the finals against you. So you beat the guy who beat the guys. But prior <laughs> to the U.S. amateur, Redman's claim to fame really was being an extra in Caddyshack. He wasn't really high, that highly ranked at all. Did that put pressure on you? Did you know him? Or all of a sudden, are you the guy trying to beat the Cinderella story? Well, it was, it was a weird situation. If when you got to the final four or, or the semifinals, uh, all three, all, all three of the guys that were left besides me were from Florida. And I know Eric grew up in that area. He knew that golf course very well. And it didn't surprise me that he was playing very well there. The grass was what he was used to it. He was used to the heat, uh, down there in West Palm beach during that time of year. But, um, I, I just think he was just in the right place at the right time. He was a very good player at the University of Tennessee. But if you go back and even look at the tape, someone says, do you know, you know, what do you think about Eric Redmond tomorrow? And I say, I don't know that much about him, but I'll find out tomorrow. So he was kind of surprised. And like you said, he beat Scott Gump, who was the medalist, and then he beat Jay Siegel. And, and when you beat those two guys, uh, you're, you're definitely playing well. 
Billy, you get your first win on the PGA Tour at the Greater Milwaukee Open, a tournament that had a rich history on the PGA Tour dating back to 1968. Unfortunately, we haven't had that event since 2009. Was it tough when you found out that uh, the place that you got your first win on tour wasn't going to be a stop anymore? <laughs> yeah, it was. I was a little frustrated with that. Uh, it, it's just kind of an ongoing joke. Whenever I seem to win somewhere, they don't ever want to go back to that place. So, <laughs> uh, I think I have that kind of a reputation, but you know, it was, it was difficult for that tournament because we moved from, uh, from a golf course that had host, hosted the tournament for so many years. They knew where everything went. They knew how to do it to a, to a public golf course at, at, uh, Brown Deer there. And, and listen, they did a wonderful job, but it, you know, they, they had their, freshman cramps and sophomore, you know, woes, all that stuff. I mean, people weren't used to being there, but, you know, obviously then a few years later, Tiger Woods made his start there. So that obviously helped the tournament. But, you know, the one thing I will say about that whole Milwaukee area and all that, they were so wonderful. They had the best custard in the world, that's for sure. But, uh, you know, the fans just came out in droves and it was really successful. And it's too bad that that the PGA Tour doesn't play there or we don't have a Champions Tour event there because I think it'd be real successful. Yeah, you mentioned the the custard, and I read a story that you loved Cops Frozen Custard when you got there. That was one of the highlights of the trip. That was always, you know, we always all of us met, and we had we stopped at Cobbs and got a cheeseburger and, and custard, and went across the street and bowled. So, uh, you know that that fate that you know that glorious tour life that we lived out there. <laughs> <laughs> and Billy, when you won that event that year. You beat another great friend of the show, Mark Kalkovecki. Ted Schultz was also in it. He got eliminated on the first playoff hole. And then you win it in dramatic fashion. You made a 20-foot chip shot for birdie on the fourth playoff hole to beat Mark. Um, four great rounds, 67, 66, 69, 68. So you were really, really firing on all cylinders that week. What do you remember about how well you were playing that week? And then to make that chip shot, what do you remember when that thing went in? Well, it was, it was a thrill because Mark had me. I thought we, we, we played ours, our fourth playoff hole. We went back to the 10th hole there and, and he hit it in there about 15 feet. And as I said, I was about 20 feet from the hole, a little bit left, just off the fringe of the green. And, you know, I was, I was wanted to get to the next hole, but, uh, um, I guess all the hours chipping and putting, uh, paid off and I chipped it in and Mark, uh, missed his putt and, and it was over with. So it was kind of a, of surprise because I, I really thought going up to that green, if I got to the next hole, I'd, you know, that would be a good thing. But, um, I had a good week. I, I, I think I was one of the few players I think there had ever, never three putted. I didn't three putt for four days at Tuckaway. And if you ever been to that golf course, the greens are really big. They're huge, uh, undulating, you know, up and down slopes and all that. So it's very easy to three putt there. So I, not only did I hit it well, I really, really putted well that week. Billy, the Canadian Open is an event that back in the day, I always felt like it was the fifth major. I think people will tell you that the players is nowadays, but I had John Cook on the show a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about this. He won the Canadian Open in 83. You made a run at winning that event in 2008. You ended up finishing second a few shots behind Ches Reevy, but you electrified the crowd with some great shots in the final round. You hold out from the greenside bunker on eight. You made six birdies on the day. Take us back to the run that you made there. Uh, it was it was a good week, and and I agree. It was it, anytime you can win a golf tournament that has open, uh, you know, for the second word, you know, Canadian, U.S., uh, you know, whatever open, you know, it's it's an important thing. I think to always have on your resume, and and I played well that week. I I, I played really really good. Uh, I played well enough to win, and it was just unfortunate that uh, Ches played a little bit better. Fiddle Sun Devil, and uh, 
But uh, we, uh, you have to remember something too, uh, Chris. That week was special because Tammy and I got engaged that week too. So uh, I think that was probably the reason why I played so well. <laughs> Speaking of Sun Devils, I want to go back to the 2010 Waste Management Open, that infamous hole, the par three sixteenth. That year, you hit your tee shot to the back right of the hole. It stopped on the fringe. Then you make about a 40-foot birdie putt that sent the Arizona fans into a frenzy. What was it like draining that putt on that hole in front of the hometown friendlies? Well, it was probably better that the ball stayed on the green than than roll off, because if it would have rolled off, they would have started booing me. Uh, (laughs) So I was probably thrilled more that it stayed on the green. And, and, uh, uh, you know, just I remember the putt, it was down and just kind of kept rolling. It was getting kind of dark then. We were finishing at dusk that time. And. And I really didn't see the hole all that well, and maybe that's why it went in. But uh, when it went in, we definitely heard it, and the crowd went crazy and all that. Uh, but one of my best stories there, a few years later on, I went back there and, and, and was on 16. And unfortunately, I did miss the green, and um, they started booing me. And, I, you know, there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to go there and all that. And I happened to look up in one of the skyboxes, and, and Tammy and my son Max were standing there. And, and Max, my son, was booing me. And uh, he was standing there booing me and he says, well, dad, I had to. And I said, well, you got a long walk home, buddy, because you're, <laughs> you're not going home with me. So, uh, no, we, we had fun. You know, listen, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fun place. It's an interesting hole. And, you know, for guys who say they don't like that, well, then don't play the tournament. If you don't like that atmosphere, if you don't like that whole situation, don't play Phoenix, but, uh, you know what you're going to get when you get there. And, and it's gotten bigger and bigger, bigger every year. And, and, uh, you know, I'm sure this year coming up next year will be it'll be even even bigger and louder. Billy, when I was watching the video from that 2010 waste management, you're wearing some sort of jersey with a number 25 on it. Who are you yeah. representing? Well, it was a Sun Devil. It was it was uh, Robles who, uh, who who was uh, was a wrestler who had uh, had some problems with his health and all that there at Arizona State. So I wore, wore a jersey for him for that particular week and. I'd like to go on record, though, that I was the first person at that tournament to wear a jersey. I know that other players have now copied me and all that, but I was the first one to do it. And uh, yeah, I loved it. It, it definitely puts a, a target on your back, because if you don't hit a good shot with that jersey on it, they will let you have it. So. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> when we've talked in the past, Billy, you said that you realized you were probably good enough to make a living playing professional golf when you were a junior there at Arizona State. What I didn't know until I was doing some more research is you decided to turn pro at that point. You didn't tell your parents that you weren't going back to school. When did you muster the courage to tell them? Well, I did finish all I did. I, I my junior year in college, I started thinking about playing on the tour and thought I was good enough. But but I did go to school uh, for all four years. Um, it was my fifth year that I needed to go back in order to get my degree. And, and my mom and dad thought I was going to do that. And I decided to turn pro and, and try the tour school and um the, telling them was a lot easier after i got through the tour school and, and had my tour card than if i would have told it before that but uh you know it's just something that i wanted to do i wasn't uh, i i have gone back and, and 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 graduated and all that since then but i school and i weren't the best of friends and and golf was what i wanted to do and you know i i felt like i was playing really good right then and and, and gave it a shot and got and got through the tour school when you won the tour championship in 1995, the total purse for that event was $3 million, by far the largest purse on tour that year. The average purse was a little over a million dollars. Now guys get that much for winning or maybe even coming in second. Does it amaze you how much the prize money has gone up 
even over the last couple of years? Um, yes, yes, and no. I mean, obviously, golf is very, very popular. Uh, all sports, all, uh, all sports. Uh, the 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 money that they're playing for, from tennis to football to basketball to every sport, has gone up such a great deal and all that. Um, I, I will say that year in '95, that was the biggest purse, and the second biggest purse was the Western Open. So I actually won both tournaments that had the biggest purse, uh, which again was nothing to buy, to what they play for now. But you know, it's just the popularity. There, there's there's so much uh, TV involved with it and all that. Uh, I'm glad these guys are playing for that much. It it is hard to get out there. There's a it is a, it is a very unique breed. Uh, very few guys get out there, and the ones who do should should make a good living at it. And Billy, to your point about winning the two biggest purses out on tour, I think one of the things, and I have to imagine, obviously I don't know, and I want to get your thought, is because we all know how much winners make all the way down to the the last guy that made the cut. We know how much money is coming in. Is that tough for you guys to know? Everybody knows how much money you're making. There's a money list at the end of the year that says everyone made this amount of money. I have to imagine off the course, having publicized how much you're making makes it difficult because I'm, I'm imagining there are a lot of folks reaching out. Well, yes, it, it is very difficult when you wake up every, every Monday morning and you can look at the paper and the whole world can see how much you made that week. And, and what's tough about that is, is that they don't realize just because we might have made a hundred thousand dollars that week, that doesn't mean that we're taking that much money home. First of all, we have to pay a state tax. Um, Every tournament we play in every state, we have to pay a tax on. So that, that's a big chunk of it gone. And we are on, we, we travel and we make, we, we do our own expenses. Uh, so, you know, we're spending anywhere from three to five thousand dollars, uh, typically and, 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 and state not, you know, very nice hotels, but not anything luxurious, but you know, we're, we're spending, we have a lot of expenses. So even if you see the guys who finished, you know, uh, dead last, making 10 or 11,000, they're probably just about breaking even by the time you pay your caddy and everything else. Uh, we're not always making everything that uh, you see. And it's the same way as you see these guys with contracts now these days. They say, well, I've made a, a $200 million contract or a $2 million contract. Remember, the agent gets 20% of it right off the bat and then the government and all that. So uh, what they post in the newspaper at the end of the year is not always as accurate as what we make. That's for sure. Billy, we're kind of in a very curious time in our game for on the PGA Tour level. We've got the proposed partnership between the PIF, the PGA Tour, and the DP World Tour. It seems like, you know, that all is supposed to get resolved here in the next couple of weeks before we get to the end of the year. Does any of that stuff, is that all, is that any of that going to impact you guys on the Champions Tour? Um. I, I don't know. I, I don't think anyone knows that particularly right now because we're not sure the direction that this is going to go in. Uh, I don't think the tour has settled on anything. Um, I, I don't think any final decisions have been made and, and, and we don't know. Uh, once we do find out, then we'll have to, uh, talk to our commissioner, Miller Brady and, uh, find out, uh, what, how it impacts us and, and, and our future and all that. But, uh, you know, I think I've said it even on your show a few times, you know, golf always finds a way to work its way out. Uh, when you have a sport where they, where we are private contractors and we do what we need to do and we have to play in order to get paid. Um, uh, we'll, we'll get this thing figured out. I, I don't know how, and I don't know when and, and all that stuff, but golf will find a way to survive. It always has. 
Billy, you guys, I, I, I tend to equate the tours kind of like a traveling show. I mean, you guys are together. You play your pro-am. You play your practice round. You play the tournament. You, you pick up. You leave that city. You go on to the next one and do it all over again. Do you guys become tightly knit group because you are essentially traveling from city to city all year long doing the same things with the same group of guys? Absolutely, we do. And, and, and not only before we got on tour, most of us played junior golf together or we played collegiate golf together. Um, we know we'll still tease guys if they went to the University of Florida. We'll, they're the Gators, we're the Sun Devils and all that stuff. So college was always a big deal. But, you know, for most of the guys I've played with, you know, I played junior golf with. I played uh, uh, college golf with. I played on the PGA Tour with. And now I'm playing on the Champions Tour with. So, yeah, you, you really get to know these people. I mean, these guys and, and their families and their wives and, and their whole lives. And, and, uh, but we are, I wouldn't say a traveling circus, but we are very, very, uh, we know, all, we know a lot about each other, but we're also a family and we're very, very, uh, um, um, uh, careful with everyone. And, and we, 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 we take care of each other out there. I guess I should say if someone gets in trouble out there, we know it and we're always there to help them. That's awesome. If you could put a foursome together to go play a practice round with or just a round of golf away from a tournament, who are the three guys you're putting together that are just going to keep you rolling? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it's, it's some of the guys who went to Arizona State. You know, we, we have a good time and all that. But, uh, you know, anymore, I mean, any, you know, it, it's hard to say. I mean, some guys going in and out, some guys are tired, some guys are injured and all that. So it's maybe not as fun. But, you know, we used to play around, you know, Rocco and I, Rocco Mediate, myself, and Jim Carter used to play a lot. And, you know, when you have those guys together, we're always laughing and, and we're talking. We're serious being out there. But, you know, the Champions Tour is supposed to be a, a more of a relaxed, more of a fun tour. And, and, and we're trying to we're trying to do that. Billy, one of the things that I've asked some of your peers about, and, and I, I, I feel this way because I have such an affinity for you and your peers out there on the Champions Tour. But the guy that walks away with the Charles Schwab Cup, I always feel like he should have a spot in the Masters. It should be some <laughs> other level of reward. I mean, look, the Charles Schwab Cup is great. The amount of money that goes with it is is great and all of that sort of thing. But the guy who is theoretically the best on the Champions Tour, to me, I think earns a spot into the Masters. Am I crazy? No. No, you're not crazy at all. We've we've discussed that. We've had meetings with that. Uh, the Masters is a, whole, is a different subject because the Augusta national is not part of the PGA tour, but I, I said, you know, someone like a Steve Stricker this past year, when it's a Charles Schwab cup, he should get an exemption into colonial because that is a Charles Schwab cup event. Um, it's hard to say to give him into a major when it's not our tournament running it. But, uh, you, you know, the guys who, the, the, the guy who wins that, or even the guy who maybe even finishes second in that should get some type of recognition and get some reward on the big tour for doing that all year. Billy, as we look ahead to 2024, do you have goals set for yourself? I know you want to win more golf tournaments, but there are there other things that you are setting goals for yourself to hit in 24? Um, you know, it really, I haven't thought all that much about it. Obviously, I, I, I didn't have as good a year last year as I wanted to. Uh, we touched at the beginning about my conditioning um, and feeling better out there. But, uh, you know, I... I'm going to approach next year just as I do every other year. And I'm sure by the time January comes rolling around, I'll be ready to go and, and anxious to uh, to get out there. Right now, uh, I'm glad to be home. I'm glad to have some time off and, and to get my feet planted on the ground. But, uh, 
give that a, another couple months and we'll be ready to get out there. But I, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, when you're, when you've done this for this long, you know, you, you, you can't wait for January and February to get here so that you get back on the road and be out there with your friends and, and, and playing golf. Cause that's what we love to do. You're only 57 years old, but do you have an idea of how much longer you want to do this? Well, my wife's sitting right here, so I got to be really careful on how I answer this question. But uh, you know, I, I got on tour when I was when I was twenty three years old, so I've been at it for quite a while and all that. But uh, you know, obviously, would love to play. Uh, you know, I, I definitely want to play till I'm sixty and and maybe even sixty two. And then, like I said, on the Champions Tour, you can kind of cut back on your schedule, maybe play you know six or seven events a year and all that, just to kind of keep you playing. But I, I, you know, I'm going to play a full schedule and play out there as long as I possibly can, um, as long as my body will allow me to, and and, and I feel good, and, and and also that I feel like I'm I'm competitive out there, which I hope I will be. But uh, I love doing it. I love the travel. I love the 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 being with out there with the other players and and getting to meet new, you know, the pro am people and getting to meet new people every week. But you know, it's something I've done since I was 23 years old, so I don't know what else I would do right now. Speaking of health, when you see what Bernard Longer is doing at his age, and he's still winning golf tournaments, he's still at the top of leaderboards week after week. Is it a wonder what that guy, I mean, he's like the, the ultimate German machine. He is a machine, and I've talked to him, and I've tried to get in that head more than anyone else, and he just won't let anybody in. But, you know, he, he has a system. He has, when you get a guy who's, who's, who's fought off the yips and the putting problems that he has, in his career and, and has been as successful as he has, you know, his mind is strong. And, uh, whenever, you know, kind of when, once he got that record of having the most, uh, champions tour wins this year, we were all so happy for him. And we thought, well, maybe he can relax now and all that. And he doesn't, he just every week. And what's surprising to me, what, what Chris, what gets me the most about Bernhardt is, is that I'll play a practice round with him and he'll hit it all over the place and he won't make anything. And he looks like he's just playing horrible. And you get out there on Friday and look at he's five under, six under par, and, and he, he he finds it. So um, he, he he's definitely a machine. He he's a great guy. I've really enjoyed being out there with him. But um, I I expect him to keep going and and just chugging along for a long time. Billy, before I let you go, how can our listeners stay up to date with the great things that you're doing? You're doing wonderful things for autism after your diagnosis a few years ago. How can we stay up to date with that, get more information on it, and follow you online and on social media? Well, one, listen to your radio show. would be It's probably one of the best things. But uh, uh, BillyMayfair.com uh, is where you can look it up. I have also have a lot of information on my autism. I've been diagnosed with autism, and, and we're trying to uh, help people with that and, and, and with families that have that uh, disease right now. But uh, uh, but I'm updating as we go along and we're a work in progress. But uh, BillyMayford.com is where you can kind of see what I'm up to. Billy, it's always a huge thrill to get to spend some time with you. Already looking forward to seeing you and Tammy again at the TPC Sugarloaf uh, for the Mitsubishi Classic in, in 2024. I wish you and Tammy a very Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. Happy New Year. I hope we get the privilege of catching up with you both again soon. Well, thank you, thank you, Chris. We appreciate it. You, uh, you're you're wonderful. We, I, I love coming out here. And, and you know what? If you really want to get get a good perspective, sometime have my wife on. That 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 will give you a whole different type of perspective. That's for sure. So, uh, uh, but you you do a great job. We love talking to you, and thank you so much. And you have a great Christmas too. Thank you, Billy. All the best to you and Tammy. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you. That is the great Billy Mayfair, folks. Is it any wonder? 
how much I care about that guy, how much I enjoy having him as part of the show. And like I say, he and his wife, Tammy, are just some of the most wonderful people you'll meet on the planet. And again, like I said during his uh, intro, the hour that I got to spend with the two of them here at the Mitsubishi Electric Classic, one of the best hours of the year so far, bar none. Great people. And Billy is just a tremendous player, rooting so hard for him to break through again and get another win out there on the Champions Tour. And he's doing great things with his foundation to help folks that have autism. So kudos to he and his wife, Tammy, for doing that as well, giving back to the folks that are dealing with uh, what Billy's dealt with his whole life. And he didn't find out about it until very late in life. So kudos to them for doing what they can to help people uh, dealing with that, whether that's the individual or the parents. BillyMayfair.com, again, is the website. Be sure to check them out and uh, give them a follow on uh, social media as well. Two better people you will not find, and I look forward to catching up with Billy and Tammy when they are back here next year at the Mitsubishi Electric Classic. Folks, before I close up shop tonight, you've heard me talk about some great products that I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show. And another one that stood out to me is On Point Golf. Game-changing, three-dimensional ball markers that science shows will help us see the line better when we're putting and therefore make more putts and lower our scores. See for yourself why Jim Furyk and I are big fans by going online to onpointgolf.us. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks again to Bob Estes, Adam Lockwood, Rob Strano, and Billy Mayfair for joining me this week. Scheduled to join me next week are our good friend Tom Patry will be here. Tom Wildenhouse. The director of golf at Old Florida Golf Club will be making his next On the Tee debut with me next week. One of the elite instructors from the LPGA, Nancy Corsolino, will be back with me. Looking forward to catching up with Nancy. She's fantastic. And they're going to round it out with Trackman golfer up Andy Strother, also making his next On the Tee debut. So it's going to be a great show, folks. I hope you'll tune in and be a part of it with us. You can find this show available as a podcast just about anywhere you get your podcast content. In particular, we're out there on TribLive.com and the Pittsburgh Tribune Review site. Just go to TribLive.com, click on Sports and then Podcasts, and you're going to find the show front and center available for you there. You can also find it on Good Pods, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audioboom, Playa.fm, and pretty much anywhere you get your podcasting content. Just type in Next on the T in the search bar. I'm sure you'll find it on that favorite site as well. And as always, my thanks to the folks over at Good Pods for making this show one of their recommended podcasts and a staff pick. Please download their free app and stream your favorite podcast right there on your favorite device. But most of all, my thanks to all of you for being the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very much. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.
With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.